Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. We're talking with Robert Kappelman, uh, an engineer with experience in climate, uh, and uh, we're talking about climate change with him. And I'd like to go back to the greenhouse effect, okay? Uh, initially, if I remember correctly, in 1978, at the very first Earth Day, we were told that because of the greenhouse effect, that that greenhouse effect would block the heat from the sun coming to the Earth increasingly, and that by the year 2000, the temperature on planet Earth would have dropped by 11 degrees and 80% of the species alive on Earth would be dead or extinct as a result. That's what we were told by the scientists in 1978. Is that... Well, it's, that's it's, my memory. Of yeah, that. it's it's close. It's close. What, what happened, I was in graduate school at the time, and I as you mentioned, I was working on atmospheric photochemistry to see what kind of neat new compounds were made in the air from all man, uh, man's pollution and stuff like that. Uh, the guys and gals across the hall were actually working on models to predict when the next little ice age was going to occur. And I think that's what you're, you're thinking about. And it's funny how science gets started. You make an observation. You look at data. Well, the Earth had been cooling since the 1940s, and someone drew a line and said, my goodness, we've been cooling since the 1940s all the way to the 70s. If this keeps up, we're going to be in another ice age. And lo and behold, and I I still remember because everyone was thinking about the research grants and what have you, uh, in the mid part of the 70s, the temperature started to increase. And so we've had a temperature increase gradual um, through the, the 90s to the 2000s. We've had actually the temperature go back up and someone drew a line and said, what if the temperature keeps going like this? You know, now we're going to have a different type of planet, a, a warmer planet. We're going to have droughts. We're going to have hurricanes. We're going to have much worse of everything. Uh, no real evidence that that's the case, but people project. And a lot of the stuff you hear is based on worst-case scenarios. And I, I sometimes like to refer to the uh, base scientific research that the uh, climate scientists do 
as sort of the X-Files. The truth is in there somewhere. And uh, I spend a lot of my time having to go through the, uh, the basic research results um, from EPA, uh, you know, some of the uh, climate uh, stuff. And what you find is that the variability that they say is out there, what they call the climate sensitivity, is they're projecting, and when they say they're 99% sure that they're right about this, you have to say, what do they say they're right about? And it actually says their modeling, their data shows that they're sure that the climate is going to change either a little bit above normal to a great deal above normal. And they're 99% sure the change in climate will be a little bit above natural to climate Armageddon. And so when you hear that they're that confident, there's a tremendous range in their confidence. But when you look at, you take the data from the climate scientist and take it to the political scientist, you'll, you'll then get people making these wild projections of droughts and hurricanes and so on. And the basic science data that the climate scientists actually produce do not show those things. They show those things as extreme and not likely. So, again, you've, you've come to uh, Bob Kappelman to discussing that the fact that there, is, there are two sides to this issue. There's the scientific side and there's the political agenda side of the issue. And again, I'm going to put the political agenda side. I'm going to put that off for a while because I think we need to really delve a little bit more into the science before we get into the politics. I will mention, however, since we've talked about the first Earth Day in 1978, uh, the interesting thing is one of the scientists who was there uh, making all those predictions was a scientist that I knew very well because he was very famous for work in insect vision, which is, and I had actually met him because he was a teacher of the professor whom I worked for in the biology department at Yale. But nevertheless, I think that you can see, and as you will admit, what happened is they they saw a trend and they seized upon it to make predictions. Shortly after doing that, they found that the trend was going in the other way. And so they rapidly changed what they were saying. And Oh, no, it's not going to be a cooling thing. We're, we're heading for global warming instead of global cooling. But as you so correctly mentioned, these people are looking at a very tiny beginning portion of a graph and then extrapolating from these tiny little curves here and there what might happen years and years down the road um, – that can be a very dangerous thing scientifically, don't you think? Yeah, and it's what we're sometimes calling outcome-based science. In other words, this is what I want the answer to be, and I'm going to cherry-pick the data, or I'm going to ignore data that contradicts. And th- this is where it's really tragic because of the conflict between the uh, scientists that say, 
it's man, it's man, it's man. And the contrarians, uh, which I think are probably the better of the scientists who say, yeah, man may be uh, part of the impact, but we have to define it and you can't ignore the natural cause of climate change. Normally what happens, and I know you did research, I did research, and we would have to, we would have a seminar at the end of every week for a couple hours where you would present your data. And I would have to present what I had found, what are my conclusions related to what kind of reactions I was measuring. And these people would be brutal. I mean, they were my friends, but they took great glee in picking apart um, one of my conclusions or something like that. I know you probably experienced the same thing. That's the way you get better. If you have a hypothesis and someone brings one fact that contradicts your hypothesis, you don't have a valid hypothesis anymore. It has to stand the scrutiny of all attacks to the veracity of your claim. This is what's not happening in the climate debate because you have the contrarians who are not allowed to really participate in the debate. Now, I was fortunate enough to uh, go to an international climate uh, update uh, that was uh, held. I guess the last one I went to was about three years ago. And we had climate scientists from 13 different countries. And I was listening to what they had to say and their data and their research. And I said, this is excellent. Why isn't this getting out? And it, basically because it disagreed with the popular narrative that was out there. And again, a lot of times what we're getting is research that is skewed. It's not saying that they don't have those numbers that they've created, but you, you, don't, you say, well, what are the assumptions you made? I'll give you one example, and you've probably heard this. A DOD study, Department of Defense, great outfit. They did a study and they came to the conclusion that climate change would cause regional wars. I don't know if you remember that or not. I do. But does anyone ask, well, what assumptions did the DOD use or have to use in their study? Well, if I told you that they had to assume that most of the uh, farming land in Thailand and Vietnam in uh, those areas were no longer irritable because they're flooded and those people are facing starvation, they head north. They have a conflict for a thousand years with the Chinese. You now have the potential for a regional war. Now, did they look at what happens if the ocean doesn't rise as much as the assumption they were given? well, then you don't have the regional wars. So you always have to ask on these studies, what were the assumptions that the scientist or the economist or the military experts were given in their studies? You very rarely can find that in the popular press. We're speaking with Robert Koppelman, a master's degree in environmental engineering from the University of Florida and years of experience in environmental issues, um, 
We're discussing research. Uh, you brought up a really important point, and that is when you are involved in research, you have to defend your data and your conclusions repeatedly during the course of your studies. And you brought to mind uh, something, of course, that I had forgotten. That was that my research advisor, every Friday afternoon, we would be in his office and we would be asked to present everything we did for the week. And then he would sit there and pretty much throw verbal darts at us for a couple hours until we, with great shame, had to retreat back to our labs and change everything we did so that the next Friday our data would be uh, could be defended as being correct and proper. And that kind of scrutiny is what makes science better and better, more nearly perfect. Because if you are just in your own lab doing your own experiment and you don't have anyone to look over your shoulder and say, well, why'd you do that? Or can you defend why you did that? Or what does this mean? Isn't this contrary to what you told me last week? If you don't have someone standing over your shoulder doing that, you can pretty much come up with anything you want. That's the truth. Um, And I think the, again, the issue is we don't have the interplay with the other scientists in this. Um, So they're not allowed to ask their questions on, well, why, what was your assumption here? What was your assumption there? And we do see a lot of cherry picking of data, um, you know, in this whole process, not just this, but a lot of the proposed EPA regulations, their justification for the regulations. Uh, and unless you have an open forum that people can discuss and ask questions, but literally the group that sometimes called the contrarians are not allowed to participate. They're not, they're not invited to these forums where you discuss the ideas and so on. So you have to be a little bit skeptical of the product that comes out of that type of process. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum will be right back after a quick break. One of the, one of the, st- the studies which is often used as the basis for all of this is the, the so-called hockey stick study in which, and I forgot that fellow's name, he was from somewhere. Yeah, up, Michael Mann. Michael Mann, up in the Northeast somewhere, one of those ivory tower institutions, in which he showed that the temperature on Earth was pretty much constant for centuries until we developed the internal combustion engine, and all of a sudden the temperature started going up on Earth. And he did that, as I recall, by measuring the rings and trees uh, and measuring growth rates of trees from their rings and stuff like that. Now, is it true that that original data of his is not available? Well, I don't know that is the case for sure. But one of the things that you can do, a trick you can play on the data, is smoothing the data and then also saying, ah, I don't think this data is valid, so I'll eliminate this data. There's a a process of smoothing a curve, a least square fit. You still remember from that? 
uh, basically you can take a bunch of numbers that are like a jigsaw and run a least square fit and get a smooth curve to go through it. Um, Michael Mann basically was able to say, well, you know, I don't know if I can trust this data. There's not measured data. I don't know if I'm going to believe this, believe that. And so he was able to take out uh, the, uh, the Roman warming, warming period, the medieval warming period, and basically smooth that curve out. But then when it came to measured data, he said, aha, now I've got measured data. So that was the measured data was what gave him the tip of the hockey stick. But all the other warming and cooling periods were basically smoothed out if you can think, think about it in that way. So if you, uh, so, and is that important? Well, sure it's important because when you claim it's never been this warm before and you present your hockey stick as evidence of runaway temperature, it's, it's pretty scary, you know, especially to a layman um, on this. But if you find out, well, wait a minute, uh, the Roman warming period was even warmer than the medieval warming period, and that te- those temperatures were projected to be at least as high as what we have now. So, um, and to ignore the little ice age on that, that's, that's the thing that is amazing. Uh, most people are, have heard of the little ice age, but they don't realize that we've, the official end of the little ice age is about 1880. And if you look at the warming trend, we've been going up and down, but progressively warmer, even though we've had cooling periods and so on, since 1880. Now, is it surprising that the temperature is going up as we come out of the Little Ice Age? Well, of course not. Wouldn't you think that would be a natural event? Yes, but how many times have you read in... USA Today or any of the other popular publications about, well, you know, the temperature is going up, but, you know, that may be due to the fact we're coming out of the Little Ice Age in 1880. Also, uh, when we started taking temperatures where we could get global temperatures, we had enough countries that were taking annual temperatures, daily temperatures, what have you, uh, was again probably the 1880s. And also now you have actual temperature readings. You only have projected uh, temperatures by growth rings, et cetera. But another thing that's ignored, along with the geologic records, are the history records. The, The climate scientists in the IPCC, they're some excellent scientists, and they work in their field. But there are a lot of gaps in the scientists you need to fully evaluate this. Uh, You don't have many solar scientists at all that understand the power of the sun. I mean, when you think about it, well, I wonder where all our heat comes from. It comes from the sun. And most people realize, at least on the large term, the sun is the big engine, you know, that drives drives everything. Uh, The UN does not have a lot of solar scientists in this group, uh, you learn a lot from the historic records. Uh, that's when you can find out what was going on in uh, medieval uh, Europe at the time. You've got the Roman writings. You've got 
so many different things, where grapes were grown back in those times versus where grapes can grow today. So you've got those kind of records. Those are ignored. Those are not part of the studies. So you're not getting a really good cross-section of all the scientists that you need having input, you know, into something as important as this, considering what we're proposing to do uh, to solve it. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Thank <laughs> you.